and uh, welcome to the complete episode 11. We are going to be covering Shining today, which is a uh, James Brooks-influenced romantic comedy, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up, boy. You want to get sued? (laughs) One of the best fake trailers ever. Oh, yeah. The the godfather of them all, I think. If anybody hasn't seen that, please stop listening to this right now in your car. Pull over to the side of the road and Google Shining uh, trailer, fake trailer. Okay. So, anyway... uh, I'm here as usual with my guest, my co-host, Travis Trudell. How are you doing, Travis? I'm doing well. How about yourself, man? I'm doing good. I'm uh, getting ready for the winter. And for all of you (laughs) who do not know who this is, this is Matthew Gasteyer, because he never says his own name. I do sometimes. It's my job as the sidekick to come in (laughs) and say his name, and I have failed for 10 episodes, but no more. No, That's no. Mad, I've been doing it for the last couple of episodes. I have. I've been good about it. Um, no, you're like uh, Ed McMahon uh, with "Here's Johnny." <laughs> Heyo. I like how that connected. You just laughed the whole show. Reference <laughs> on this on the Shining episode, Travis. Very nice. Good job. Thank you. I try. Uh, and uh, if anybody heard that third voice here, we do have a third voice, and it's not a ghost. It's Aaron West. Aaron, how you doing? Good. I'm the side sidekick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, you're just reclining uh, in Florida right now uh, with your your beautiful uh, African queen posters, right? You just got back from Florida, I, so were were you did, were you yeah. in the hotel the same uh, the same vacation home? Was that his, it's probably his vacation home, right? I was actually, and I had that poster um, yeah. of uh, the, that uh, lovely lady there on my go. wall. Um, yeah, I was just chilling, watching the news, and apparently uh, the shit's going down in Colorado, so I thought I'd come back to the, <laughs> yeah. the southern east coast. <laughs> so I think probably every person listening to this knows who you are, but for uh, for my mom, why don't you, uh, tell, why don't you tell the people <laughs> well, at home uh, a little something about yourself? I just said the S word, so apologies to your mother, <laughs> um, but uh, I'm my name's Aaron West, and I am a Criterion aficionado, just like the two of you. I've been, uh, ho- uh, I host Criterion now, been with Criterion Cast for a couple years, and uh, yeah, and I, and I love The Shining, so I'm glad to be here. Uh, this is, of, of all the Kubrick films uh, to talk about, and there's a, a lot of them I love, uh, this is my choice. Well, we're we're happy to have you. Yeah, you were the first person that I uh, asked um, if you wanted to pick an episode for this season uh, to be a, a guest on, and uh, you picked The Shining. Um, so, which we'll get into uh, your reasons for that uh, soon. But the first thing I wanted to ask you was just uh, the same thing I ask uh, all our guests, which is how you came to Stanley Kubrick and kind of what your relationship with him as a director is and how it has evolved through the years how i came through kubrick well i I saw the shining when i was eight so that's how that was my first (laughs) exposure to kubrick which is a, a a story in itself um and as for my the rest of his library i probably saw clockwork orange second i think that's you know as you grow up those are the two <laughs> the, the, those are the entry points as uh, and that's been a, a topic of discussion lately mm. i I'd, um and then I, of course later 2001 was the benchmark um strange love of course so i think at first probably with a lot of people Kubrick's films work on a lot of levels they're very entertaining uh they're very 
thought provoking, and uh, and they're they're on g- different genres as you've uh, well covered on this series. Um, I think that I enjoyed them as entertainment when I was younger, and I've enjoyed them on a deeper level as I've grown older. And uh, a couple of them I actually didn't take to as well uh, the first time through. Actually, I think we've talked Barry Lyndon. Uh, I think the first time I was probably not ready to see that, and I didn't uh, enjoy it, but just recently revisited it, and uh, so my relationship with that film has evolved very well. Um, really appreciate things I might not have noticed when I was 18, like candle lighting and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, The Shining has always been my uh, my favorite, so um, so yeah, thrilled to be here. I uh, studied a little bit in, uh, in film, film studies classes, so I think we'll probably talk about that some. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, um, yeah, thanks. I mean, yeah, the, the, the idea of, I mean, uh, Travis and I both have six-year-old boys and, uh, the idea that, that in two years they'd be ready for the shining is pretty, (laughs) pretty terrifying. Yeah. How, how, how did that happen? Was it an accident or was it like a, a cousin that showed, it's always a cousin that shows you something you're not supposed (laughs) to see. No, it was my mom, and she still, in fact, she, I just saw her last week uh, for Mother's Day, and she still, she brought it up. She still regrets showing me The Shining <laughs> when I was eight. And I'm like, no, it's cool, Mom. It, it actually changed my life. Um, but no, I, I, if you can imagine at eight years old seeing The, the Shining, it's it's scary at, at our age, probably even after seeing it numerous times. But for an eight-year-old, uh, and of course you identify with the Danny character, and um, uh, which is pretty pretty creepy. So I think for maybe two, three weeks, I was like in shock. Uh, like seriously, I, I couldn't be in a room by myself. Uh, and I, I uh, maybe that explains a few things. Uh, <laughs> but I remember even going like to, to the bathroom. Like I, I was, I wanted my mother to be in earshot. Um, and then I think a year later, I saw Phantasm and, um, you know, the rest is history. Wow. <laughs> so you're saying funny. even at eight, you wanted people to listen to your pee breaks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, good one. Uh, Touche, Matt. Uh, yeah, that that's what, where it all started. It's all come full circle. No, I mean, I think uh, I I mean I also was exposed to way too many movies way too young uh, by my parents, unsuspecting parents. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think with The Shining, it's uh, it, it is interesting to think about the notion of identifying with Danny uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to either of the adult characters or, or looking at him as a child in danger, as opposed to looking at him, him as yourself in that situation, what would you do? Um, Mm -hmm. is, uh, is a pretty terrifying thought. Well, but I would not recommend it to you as parents. (laughs) I wouldn't wait till 20. I think, I think it's, you know, maybe 12, 13, 14. Right. Um, <laughs> well, we might as well get into it since we're talking about it already. Um, Travis, do you want to do a a, a quick rundown uh, of what uh, what brought Stanley Kubrick to The Shining? Yeah, for sure. Um, so after his disappointment yet again in having low box office returns for Barry Lyndon, he got some critical praise, but he wasn't happy as usual like his movies are being misunderstood he's not getting the box office numbers he wants um he starts reading books at a crazy rate trying to find the next project he wants to work on he wants to get something in the pipe and uh because he knows how long development hell can be after his uh napoleon incident so um he goes to see this gothic uh 
Uh, I can't remember her. Uh, she's the co-writer of the film. Um, uh, Diane Johnson. She's uh, teaching a, semin- a seminar on Gothic, uh, Gothic literature. And through that, he really enjoys that subject, and so he decides to kind of move towards horror. There's some, uh, there's some back and forth. Uh, some people claim that since 1968, he was looking to redefine the horror genre, uh, kind of like he did with the uh, science fiction genre. And, uh, but he, as his usual ways, he dispels all those rumors and says, no, no, I've never wanted to do anything. Kind of like, <laughs> kind of like how he claims he never read books, even though that's all he does. Is he also, books. in an interview for this movie, said that he never wrote an original screenplay. Uh, he's, he, he loves, he loves keeping his mythos alive. So. Yeah. But yeah, he uh, he uh, someone showed him this property at the time. It hadn't even been released yet as a book. It was a spec. It was the uh, um, you know just the manuscript for the book. It was going to be released soon, and uh, he really liked it. He really liked the themes and what was going on in it, and uh, they kind of aligned as we will now talk about aligned with a lot of his themes that he's already gone through in his other movies, and. Uh, yeah, it was a uh, it was kind of a crazy uh, thing. He uh, he started writing it in 1977. Uh, the book was released in 1978, and that's when they actually started filming. Uh, he kept the set really tight. He did not uh, he did not let anyone on set. No press. No one was there. Um, he let his daughter document it, knowing that it would be something to use later for his press junkets and whatever he wanted to do. But he kept uh, it was a ten-man crew. That was all he used for this. Mm. Like wow. he scaled way down after uh, Barry Lyndon. Uh, he wanted to go lean and mean and spend a lot of time, quality time, on the movie. I mean, he still had like you know carpenters and special effects guy during all the snow stuff, but he kept it really tight and. Uh, it was supposed to be a uh, sixteen-week shoot, seventeen-week shoot. Uh, Fourteen months later, they finished principal photography. <laughs> wow. So that's like two hundred shooting days. Um, so it was. It's pretty intense, and uh, uh, the main reason for that is uh, most movies shoot like a, a five-to-one ratio, meaning for every shot or scene, uh, they're shooting five takes of that usually between 5 to 15. And uh, this movie, he was shooting an, on average, 102 takes per shot, mm. um, which is yeah. insane. <laughs> 1.3 million feet of film uh, was produced at the end of this, wow. which is just... This is where this is where that rumor, that Stanley Kubrick emerges, the one that, you know, the uh, consummate retaker and taker of uh, shots this is where that happened and uh Mm. his editor was uh was interviewed and he said that it was very interesting because as you watch the progression of these takes you see that like in the first 10 takes the actors are nailing it like perfect and then they just get so tired and the performances start slogging and then by like take 200 you know nicholson is just like off the rails bizarre because he has nothing. He doesn't know what to give him anymore. And those are the takes that right. Kubrick loved. And those <laughs> are the ones he, yeah, those are the I ones he, Yeah, it. yeah, and those are the ones he used for the normal scenes. And when supernatural stuff was occurring, he used the tired dead takes cuz he wanted the supernatural elements to stick forward. And this is according to the editor. So we'll talk about that more, but uh yeah, and it uh it was a big hit. 
it, it was it was a big financial hit for him, a big success for once. Um, of course, not for his artistic intent, um, just for being a horror film that was good on suspense, good on terror. You know, all the horror genre boxes were ticked for a lot of people. A lot of critics didn't like it. Pauline Kael missed the mark horribly. <laughs> as, you know, as we've said, Pauline yeah. Kael and Kubrick do not get along at all in terms of what their <laughs> thought thought process is. And uh, yeah, it, uh, it it went well. Um, the only other kind of little nugget of trivia that I found was that uh, the reason why Nicholson was cast in this was that Kubrick had been circling him uh, originally to play Napoleon. Um, for his film ad- adaptation. Later, when he wanted to turn it into a TV series, it was Al Pacino. He was circling for that. But Oh, I didn't know that. Huh. Originally, it was uh, he really liked Nicholson for the role um, for his film one. Um, and then, you know, so that so that was kind of interesting. I learned that on this one. And, uh, yeah, the other, the other last little bit is Stephen King did not like this movie. Um, mm-hmm. that's famous. Their, their little confrontations and spats about the whole thing. I think King's famous quote is that it's like a ca- beautiful Cadillac with no engine. Um, he really didn't like the, uh, that it cut a lot of the, uh, processes and psychology out of his characters. And then, uh, but at the same time, when Kubrick called him about the project, he said, you know, he was like, I have a problem with this being a ghost story. Because ghost story means that there's some sort of optimism to the film because there's life after death. And he couldn't get that uh, that mode of thinking out of his head until Stephen King said, well, there's also hell if there's life after death. So maybe all these people are in hell. That's what I consider being a ghost, being in hell. And then once that kind of clicked with Kubrick, he was able to get into the project a lot a lot more uh in depth like he was really able to connect with the process a bit a bit better so yeah that's about it that was uh yeah you know and then we can talk about the film i can i can share a story about the time i saw it in a movie theater on a midnight screening that was uh, that was the first time i really saw this movie I saw it before on some VHS tape at some friend's house at some sleepover, but you're not really paying attention to it. You're jumping, you're running around, you're being, uh, you know, twelve-year-old boys. But when I was uh, when I was uh, nineteen, they had a midnight screening of it for Halloween at a local cinema in uh, Maine where I grew up, and the lines were so big it, they had to open two more screens. So they were basically, I talked to some of the kids who worked there, they were basically grabbing the reel from screen one after it, you know, <laughs> after, after it ran out, jumping over <laughs> to screen two and starting it. And so the third screen just started at like, you know, a half hour, 45 minutes later because they just kept on bumping the reels down the line, wow. playing it for three screens. But my favorite thing ever was it was packed. It was just this. I've never been in a cinema that was completely packed before. And as we were all waiting for the movie to start, this one kid walks has to walk all the way to the front of the cinema, and he is this little skinny white kid with the biggest afro I've ever seen. And you could just you could hear the giggling from behind, and it just kind of like rolled like a wave as he walked. And then, of course, when we get into Halloran's apartment, 
and we see that beautiful Nubian princess <laughs> with the afro, the crowd just like lost it. And this because you could still see him up in the front like a mystery science theater <laughs> robot with his hair kind of poking into the top of the frame. It was hysterical. So that's my shining story. But uh, yeah, let's let's get into it. Actually, I think it's worth noting regarding King. I think he still hates it. I haven't. I saw something somewhat recently, and my memory's foggy. But I think he still dislikes the film. But you know, he wrote a sequel novel a couple years ago. But I and I read it, and I really think, and this might have just been memory because it's been like decades since I read the first book. But I think he incorporated some of the some of the movie elements into the sequel. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, Somebody... when he well, so he he uh, we might as well talk about this now. He he made a miniseries in the nineties uh, for TV, right? Uh, that he wrote <clears throat> and produced, and actually, he, as part of his um, deal to get the rights back from Kubrick to make the miniseries, uh, he was no longer allowed to trash talk the yeah. movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, which is just, you know, again, just so Kubrick, but, um, he, he made the, this miniseries. Have you guys seen the miniseries? Did you see it when it came, when it was on? Yes, I did. I, I haven't, but I understand they use the real Stanley hotel in that. I, yeah. I, I could be wrong. It's, uh, is... it's not good. <laughs> no, it it's, that's what I, that's why I haven't seen it. <laughs> it's not you... good. And, 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 you know, I can't, I, I'm, I am a King fan I mean, I wouldn't call myself a fan, but I, I enjoy his books. Mm-hmm. I think he's a good writer. Uh, he doesn't really understand movies, <laughs> which no, I think is pretty um, clear from the movies that he's written uh, and or directed. Um, and uh, that that being said, I, I do think he has some legitimate gripes with, with the film, but I, I did think it was very clear uh, and interesting when Kubrick said, that King is fundamentally a moralist as a writer and that's what the book was about. And he, Kubrick is very much not interested in that uh, perspective. And so, you know, he wanted to do something entirely different. So he understood the, the bones of the thing were really appealing. And as he said, uh, King's strength is in plotting uh, in a lot of regards. And he kept, a lot of that for the most part. Um, so I think he knew again, what he wanted to take from it and what he didn't want to take. And, uh, he, you know, King had written a screenplay, uh, for this, for the film, uh, I think for Warner brothers, uh, because they were developing it and that that's how he found it. They, they gave him the book to read and, uh, Kubrick never looked at it because he a wasn't interested by b more importantly i think he knew he wanted to write it himself he didn't want the author's involvement in the film and he didn't want to be poisoned by any sort of conception of what king wanted from the movie he wanted to go just based on what he saw in the book what he wanted to get out of the movie yeah and i think some of that is in response to kind of like the sour taste left in his mouth from uh, Anthony Burgess and Clockwork because they kind of famously had a hard time after a back and forth about the scripts, which we kind of talked about on that episode. So, And it's funny because Stephen King didn't like a lot of the movies made from his works. 
And then to kind of like prove that he could make a good Stephen King movie, he made his own. Oh, no. Maximum Overdrive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then he just shut up after that. <laughs> yeah, wisely. <laughs> I'm on Team Kubrick for, for in this debate, I think. Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, I think Kubrick certainly won out. I mean, this is the most famous Stephen King adaptation. Mm-hmm. You know, Carrie is pretty pretty successful and popular too but uh i think this probably takes the cake and i think a lot of people who love this movie are not even aware that it's a king book it's it's a famous king book but it's not probably up there with the other ones and i don't think it would even be as well known as it is within king's uh sort of oeuvre Mm -hmm. uh if it wasn't for this movie uh so i think they kind of helped each other along a little bit i think you're right um well i i think we kind of all love this movie but um did you did try i mean and travis did you have any further thoughts on kind of what you thought about it this time around or overall kind of what your takeaway from it was before we get into the details the hardest thing was to divorce myself from having seen this so many times and yeah. to stop looking at it in the surface of uh, just a typical genre horror movie, which is it's that that's kind of hard, you know, because a lot of times, uh, you know, there's certain films that you can you start watching and you get the deeper meanings right away and you just mind them and kind of watch it over again to kind of really talk about the themes and the stuff like that and with the shining i think because i had watched it at such a young age and watched it repeatedly at such a young age that i had to i mean i watched it once and then the next day i had to watch it again and really slow myself down and like i i had to i had to just start taking notes and that was the only way i could turn off my entertainment you know teenage brain <laughs> and 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 actually start like thinking about it because the other, uh, you know, the other aspect that kind of didn't pollute it but changed it is just the, and I know this is, we're, we're, I'm jumping way ahead in our discussion topics, but just the the massive amount of shining conspiracy theory and just like just the cur- like just the like the the fact that there's a whole documentary room two three seven that focuses on just the massive amount of people who think this movie has deeper meanings than maybe you know it was intended or even it it naturally has and so because of that you're kind of like watching it and going oh i'm picking up on this or or am i crazy (laughs) and then you kind of like you kind of dial it back which is unfortunate because there are all kinds of fantastic themes and things that you can Mm -hmm. apply to this film that are reasonable and relevant as a but you could easily go off the deep end and you know once you start thinking about it of course you can see every single thing that you think mate you know has him saying he faked the moon landing if that's what you want to do that's <laughs> you know, not real trav i no. <laughs> that was my reading of the film oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to blow your whole theory out of the water <laughs> we we can discuss it in length but i'll just shake my head over the radio <laughs> it's funny because i think the shining because it overlaps with so many other movie fandom circles often gets short shrift in cinephile circles 
for it, uh, within Kubrick's filmography um, because it's 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 almost like people are like ah the the horror nuts got that one covered so <laughs> let's really focus on how awesome 2001 and Barry Lyndon are um, and so it kind of goes uh, unnoticed a little bit and it it does become then uh, a popcorn movie. Um, but there, yeah, there is so much in here and, and it's certainly no more of an, no less of an accomplished film from a filmmaking perspective than any of his previous few movies. Uh, but that's also something that, uh, happened when the film was released. Uh, you know, uh, Pauline Kael had been trashing Kubrick for the last 15 years, but she was finally not alone with this movie. Uh, it, it got pretty generally negative reviews in the u.s and mm -hmm. uh in fact was kubrick's first film uh since i think uh since was it dr strangelove since dr strangelove not to get uh an, any oscar nominations um i don't remember if if strangelove did or not but um it, it had been a while regardless um and so there was this perception that like oh kubrick had just made this horror film and he didn't really understand horror uh, so it didn't really, it just didn't work at all. Uh, like, I think she said something along the lines of like, he just doesn't understand what's scary. <laughs> um, and so I think like, you know, it, it can, it can be kind of just taken as this, you know, movie that was in the middle of a horror craze, you know, a post Halloween. And, um, you know, we were about to get Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th and all of the sequels that, uh, that came out of that. And so it does feel like he's selling out to uh, make money back so that he can make his next movie. He doesn't have to worry about um, another disaster after Barry Lyndon. Uh, but I don't think that's the case. And um, watching it this time was, uh, it was really great in context of his other movies, because you do see so much of him in this movie and you see so much of his ambition, the way that he, uh, structured the movie, the way that he shot the movie. And obviously the, the use of Steadicam in particular, uh, is so impressive here and especially must have been just mind blowing, uh, when this movie came out, it's, it's actually kind of shocking that it wasn't more, noted uh in reviews at the time uh even though steadicam had been used in a couple of other movies already uh it's really uh it, it was never used like this uh in rocky or anything mm -hmm. like that like this is a very um it's it's very constant and there's scenes here that literally could not have been shot five years ago that that he's doing I mean, especially the chase through the maze is something that that wouldn't have been possible um, so that aspect of it is really impressive. And it kind of contributes to the unease you feel throughout oh, the film, yeah. too, with, with all the other filmic element, elements. And I, I think actually rating it as a horror does a kind of disservice to it because I think it trans, transcends the, the genre. And I think that, uh, but, and actually let me address a point, a discussion point you made a day or two ago, Matt, that I didn't engage with, but you had asked about um, people... The, the notion that a favorite movie has to be one you'd want to watch repeatedly. Do you remember this conversation? Yeah. Uh -huh. And, and actually I, and I, I agree, I agree that, you know, a lot of my favorite movies, I didn't respond, but it made me think, um, you know, say 
grand illusion and a brighter summer day, I'm not going to go watch them tomorrow. Um, this is one of those rare films that is both entertaining, horrific, but also deeply layered and textured, and you can, and that's why some of the nut job conspiracy theories come out of it. Right. There's so much there, and it's so meticulously put together. And, uh, and, and of course, as you know, as you've talked about, Kubrick is such a taskmaster when it comes to framing everything and, and putting uh, so much in there that you can take so much away from it. So, yeah, and anyway, I, I think it, it is it does work as a horror film, and it is scary, but I think it actually just works as an art film, and people tend to not give it credit for that uh, unless they do deep readings. Yeah, yeah I no, I yeah, I agree too. I think, I think like many of his films, it it was so forward in its thinking that it took a later generation to understand it completely, mm-hmm. and that has happened with a lot of his films. Is they're just so ahead of what they're, of what is expected of that time period that people, you know really weren't able to express what was going on in them in proper terms. And, you know, only through later viewings can you kind of get that. And I, and I agree, I agree with you about the, the fact that you can shut your brain off and watch this movie and you can turn your brain on and be engaged in so many deeper levels. And that's, that's a testament to his ability as a filmmaker. Um, Going off of something Matt just said about, watching this in context of watching his chronology of films, the one thing that struck me on the, on this viewing was uh, just this, the massive, uh, just the really precise intent, Mm -hmm. like how intent his shots, you know, how thought out and specific and uh, the decisions he made is so clear, Um, you know, coming off of Barry Lyndon in which you're watching all these tableaus unfold and everything is at a distance where we're held at a reserve because, you know, we're in a reserve society The you know, it struck me as like I was just floored by how claustrophobic everything was and how tight all of his shots Mm -hmm. were. Like when you have that first conversation of, uh, Jack, uh, speaking with the, uh, uh, the person who runs the uh, Omen. The, the interviewer. Yeah. yeah, and everything. Like, you have one shot getting him in the room, and everything else, you're in singles. Rarely is anyone together in a frame. Um, and that's very, in, you know, as you start looking at that, you see it's very intentional. You know, when P two people are sharing a frame together, there's a very specific connection and reason why. Otherwise than that, like, there's so much just isolation in this film which we can talk about a a little more um because i think that's a a very big theme in this film another good example is uh the 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 same thing you just pointed out trav is uh the the, there's a lot of shot reverse shot and the halloran danny scene where he's actually explaining the shining and and how they just i don't even know if they were filming at the same time they probably weren't that was probably take 100 poor kid but uh, but yeah, that does as you put it, it's claustrophobic, and it, and that's actually a pretty light scene compared to what what comes later. Um, oh yeah. yeah, and the same thing happens later uh, in kind of almost one of um, Shelley Duvall's longest scenes where she comes in and interrupts uh, Jack Nicholson while he's writing. Oh god. The the, the shot uh, of of Jack has this cavernous background with the the elevators and there's Mm -hmm. the chair that of course that disappears uh after different shots um 
And then her shot is just dead on her super close, you know, close up, like with a, a wall behind her. And it just, it seems like it's in a different room. It's so, they seem so disconnected from each other. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that is a consistent uh, concept there. Of, and of she went on to Storytime Theater, so <laughs> and this some of those the, these shots might be why. Uh, yeah, I think um, the the other thing that I really noticed watching this movie after Kubrick's other movies is just the artificiality of it seemed so much more in character than I had remembered. Um, there is something about this movie, you know. There, I think it was. Uh, I forget where where I saw this while while some some of the supplements um somebody said the the famous thing about Kubrick saying uh there's there's real and then there's interesting and um this movie has so much more interesting than real in it <laughs> yeah and and I think when you look back at the previous movies that Kubrick had made I think more and more I see more of that interesting and less of that real. And there's so much artificiality to his films that I think people don't even notice that makes his movies, I think, really accessible. And I think, you know, as we get more into these movies, I'm getting a better sense of why his films are such entry points for cinephiles when they're young because he was not a director that ever cared if you never forgot that you were watching a movie. And I think he understood that that didn't necessarily mean that you wouldn't get wrapped up in the movie and, and, and really engaged with the story and what was happening, but you could still sort of see that this was not reality that you were watching, um, that, that these weren't, you know, his, his editing is not concerned with being invisible. He wants you to see the cuts. He wants you to see mm -hmm. the Steadicam shots. He doesn't want that to feel like smooth and natural. He wants it to feel like a ghost is following Danny around the, the hotel, which is not natural. It's artificial and it, and it's creepy as hell, you know? And I think that aspect of him comes out more and more for me. And this movie when you first watch it, all you see in Jack's performance is crazy. But the more I watch it, the more I just see the, the theatricality and, and the absurdity of like, you're watching this movie about a guy go bananas and try to murder his family. <laughs> I agree. I think, uh, I think he, he makes that switch. I think because of Barry Lyndon with everything being so staged and having to be so staged to create the, look he was going for that feeling that you're looking at a painting i think he he really enjoyed that uh complete sense of artificial just like you know taking it out of the realistic but in the same sense he 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 moves even more into his naturalistic lighting like there's no hmm. there's no specialty lighting in this movie everything has a reason everything is ha it feels like it's either coming from a window or coming from a lamp usually in horror movies you have this really kind of uh 
you have this fantastic lighting yeah. either Cabinet with color dr caligari yeah you either have these hard shadows or this deep you know deep focus this whole movie is terrifying and almost 90 percent of it takes place in the daytime and it's that it's it, it's it, which is also some you know someone missed the mark on that with their comments about you know a horror movie shouldn't a horror movie is set in a giant hotel should be scary because it should be at night mm-hmm. but it's, uh, very it's bright yeah it's very bright and it's just it sh- it which lends to this idea of uh you know um you know scary things aren't just at night you know mm-hmm. this you know psychologically scary watching this man lose his mind it is happening all the time there's it's not an on and off it's yeah. it's it's a constant and even you know it, even in the daytime these horrible things can happen to us and and that that level of naturalism with this artifice that he's just putting in the forefront has a really weird juxtaposition that adds another layer of just strangeness to the whole entire picture which i find fascinating and i think there's also a lot of uh in terms of the reality i think there's a whole bunch of unreliable narrator elements here that you don't really have on his previous films maybe a little bit with clockwork orange but i think all the three primary characters uh, I think some of the, the the film work, the film elements, um, the the shooting, and the editing, um, we're not sure if what we're seeing out of their eyes is real. So when when Danny sees, you know, what Tony shows him, we don't know is that a dream, is that is that uh, just a vision, or um, when um, of course when when Torrance goes into when Jack goes into the um, the bar, you know that that's something we don't know is that real or not. So I, I think that. He, uh, and, and of course, then it goes bonkers in the third act, and there's the whole carnivalesque as- aspect. So, um, so yeah, I think uh, I think it, he makes us question reality and, and what we're seeing, whether we should be believing it. And unlike Barry Lyndon, which is a pretty, uh, you know, it's artistic, but it's a pretty linear plot. Um, it's it, this is a little bit uh, more uh, jarring, I guess. Yeah, and in fact, at the, I mean, when this film was originally released. Uh, we might, might as well, I might as well mention this here with the unreliable narrator aspect. Um, it it had a two minute scene on the end of it where they are visited uh, in the hospital, um, uh, uh, Shelley Duvall and Danny, and they inform them that there's nothing wrong at the hotel and that they never found uh, <laughs> Jack's body and that. Uh, it doesn't seem like anything happened there at all. Um, and you know, oh, and then, but then at the end he hands him, hands Danny his ball. Right. So I, I mean, there's all kinds of, uh, things like that, um, inside the movie. And I think like Kubrick recognized it at a certain point, like you have to stop, stop messing with people. Well, I think um, he actually, I, I don't know if we, if you have a spoiler policy, but he kind of, with the final shot and the, yeah. the picture, I think that's almost a troll because you it do definitely question. is. Yeah. And I think it's a much more compelling ending. Than, it is. Yeah. Than, than the, the ending that was originally put on here. I think um, you realize there is some supernatural. I, I think it, it punctuates that there's some super, supernatural. Now, whether everything from frame one to the ending, right. uh, that's, that's up for debate and discussion. Yeah, I think I think the only thing he does to kind of uh to kind of the only section of the film that can't be explained away is 
the uh, Jack being released from the refrigerator. Right. And uh, otherwise, I, yeah, otherwise yeah. than that, everything else could be his psychosis as his withdrawals from alcohol syndrome or his mental breakdown. Or even if Danny does have some sort of ESP, he could be kind of projecting the, you know, projecting these thoughts into other people's heads or. Into well, and that's where, heads. that's where there is the one exception, which, which they, they mentioned in room two, three, seven, which is that, it's possible that Danny lets him out of the storeroom. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I think for sure Kubrick's intention there was for that to be the moment that people realized that this was really happening. Yeah. Um, and, and that that proved that there was something supernatural going on. But I think from within the, the text of the movie, I think there's a pretty good case to be made that there's more to, Danny knowing what's going on here than we are aware of. And the idea that he could let his dad out either, you know, because he's aware that he's going to be killed or because he has some other desire that, um, that is not knowable to us. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's a, a, I think it's a pretty compelling concept and I like that it kind of, leaves it lingering there ultimately whether or not there is a psychological or a uh, supernatural element uh, to the to the movie yeah because if you take that out and and i think this is in a lot of respects a, a tale of abusive family I yeah. mean, with his his little confessional where he's talking to lloyd and talks about how he accidentally hurt him I, yeah i that's a, a definitely a rosy version of probably what happened but i think danny you know, if you take all the supernatural as fiction or as fantasy, would never actually let him out of the uh, the, the freezer. I think uh, Danny yeah. was just frightened of him, and and that's yeah. where he's even unreliable. You don't know if uh, if the red rum. Uh, although when he predicts like the phone call, there there are yeah. I think again, I think Kubrick is is toying with us throughout the whole thing. Is this real? Is this fantasy? Or is this fiction? And then right. at the end, he gives us some closure. Maybe. <laughs> well, even with Danny, um, you know, the, 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 the twins or the sisters saying, come and play with us forever and ever. And then the next mm-hmm. scene you have Jack repeating that phrase to Danny. Like how many times yeah. has, has Jack said this to Danny? Maybe he said this before when he hurt him, you know, and tried trying to make up for it. Um, and, and that, that's been imprinted on his brain and he's only experiencing these, visions as uh the result of this um abusive situation that he's in uh you really just don't know where that aspect is coming from and of course like the the violent visions that he has the idea that he's saying murder backwards these are all not really that weird for a child that has been physically abused uh to to be having these kinds of episodes so it's not out of the realm of uh, possibility that that there really isn't much more going on here than uh, than just uh, an abusive family, uh, you know, being run by a maniac uh, who um, just slowly goes crazy. I mean, I think, I guess, as I'm saying that, you know, he does somehow let uh, Halloran know that he's in trouble and. Mm-hmm. And that really is a picture that looks exactly like Jack in that picture at the end. So <laughs> there must be something going on. But I guess there are, it's a question of, of which thing is real and which isn't. 
and then then come the rumors. Right. The, yeah. Um, yeah the the one thing I wanted to say uh, about what you had said, Travis, earlier, it, uh, you know, uh, Kubrick mentioned that he read Freud's essay on the uncanny hmm. um, before or while he was r- working on the script, and I think in general this movie really works uh, in in the way it delivers fear in a way that is completely different from horror films that had come before for the most part. Um, I mean, I think there, there are some that kind of used similar types of things, something like cat people. Um, and, and ultimately I, I agree with you. This movie is kind of ahead of its time. I almost, I, I almost only feel like we're seeing the influence of the shining manifest itself in the horror genre within the last five to 10 years with the, slow horror movement and things like it comes at mm. night, which I think is heavily influenced by the shining. Um, Even the, the Babadook is yeah, the Babadook. The is Babadook. Like, totally. like that is just, Absolutely. yeah. Yeah. So, so I think you're totally right in that regard, but, but I do find it really interesting the way that, that Kubrick uses fear here. And I do think a lot of it has to do with the, the idea that we're seeing reality, but we're not quite seeing reality. And I think ultimately that's kind of, what film does in general, right? It's, it's trying to approximate reality and yet it never quite gets there because it's still just pictures moving all too fast. Oh yeah. I I, I wonder how do you guys do, what did you guys notice in this movie in terms of like how Kubrick deals with delivering us fear? Like what, what would you say he, he's doing here in terms of trying to make this a scary movie, Aaron. I think he does it with film language. And I, and I I think actually going back to where we started with the fake trailer, uh, the, um, him using the, yeah, shining. Uh, so when I watched it this time, I tried to watch it and I think I'm a little reverse you, Travis. I I watched it as entertainment, then art for a long time. And then now I'm, I try to watch it as entertainment. Um, but of course you can't help but uh, analyze certain things. But uh, like when Danny first sees the twins and he's in the hotel room, mm-hmm. without that one note of, of score, it might just look like, of course it's creepy that he's seeing twins that shouldn't be there, but I think it's the the, the, the non-diegetic music, the um, and then the I guess we've already talked about the Steadicam, the, the isolated uh, shots. Also, I think the use of the title cards too, and how they're there's just like a thump, and they and they just kind of interrupt the scene out of nowhere, um, and then they just say either a month later or a Wednesday or um, yeah whatever um and closing then the quick day cuts. closing day right and then three the p.m. <laughs> yes yes <laughs> it's like thank you Stanley that's uh, yeah. But and then the the quick cuts, I think, uh, like the cut of the room and the gushing of the blood. Uh, yeah, you know, it might seem look silly, but in the context of the film, um, uh, the, the way it's cut together, it just everything together just makes it just horrifying. I think and uh, and yeah, palpable. Yeah, and I uh, going off of that that bit of editing, like you could see like his strong Russian montage influences coming in on this movie in particular, cause he's really allowed to uh, put image next to reaction uh, and, and let it play out. Cause you have these long, gradual, slow crossfades 
mm-hmm. that take us from a place mm-hmm. to a place. But when we are looking at the inner working of Danny's visions, um, it is brutal and, and hard and fast and it comes and it flickers in. And, uh, it's, a uh, it's, it's very, it's very compelling. It, it makes you like, I think I read somewhere, someone wrote in one of the reviews I read, uh, you know, only Stanley Kubrick can make a, a Tuesday title card be a jump scare. Um, <laughs> you know, cause it is it, like, you have that, you it, have absolutely. that, you have that slow building dread. I mean, cause there's like three things that are, that are, all right, I'm going to table this for one second. Uh, I wanted to, uh, no, no, I'll go with this. Sorry. Uh, there's three things that they got work that he's got working for him in the film, just naturally to reach out to the basic, uh, horror goers is, you know, Jack Nicholson is crazy. Like, you know, him as an actor at this point, it's not like he'd been playing serious roles and now he's coming to this unhinged role. He has played unhinged characters time and time again. So you have that uh, Hitchcock in, uh, you know what's about to happen, so you're just waiting for it. So it builds your tension and your suspense of when is Jack going to go bananas? You have that, then you have... Just before you just... I want to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to point out about that, that that's another place where King really got this movie wrong. He did not like the casting of Jack Nicholson because he felt like his most famous role before this was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where he was crazy. So people would immediately assume that he's going crazy, and the perception should be from his book that this is a normal, good person who is driven crazy by the hotel... And of course, yeah. that was not at all the movie that Kubrick was well, yeah, making. Yeah, that, I agree 100 with you. King that's is the, wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the morality thing you're talking exactly. about there. It's not morals, uh, you know. And Kubrick, I think, in one of his interviews with Cement, he says like he is he is coming to this hotel to do away with his family. It is right there. Yeah, like in his personality, and all it takes it doesn't take a long series of you know, deep introspections to get him to this point. It took, it takes the minimalist shove to oh, get him look into on this, his face when he's point. driving to the yeah. hotel with his oh, family. Yeah. It's and the terrifying. Donner party discussion. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And, and like even, even <laughs> when uh, on TV, <laughs> he, yeah. Even when he, uh, when, uh, Ullman tells him like, Oh, how do you think your family will do up here? It, it takes him a second to process his family before yeah. he answers the question, you know, it's like, oh yeah, them. Oh shit, I forgot all about them. Oh yo, they'll, they'll love it. I don't give a shit about them. I, this is about me. Mm-hmm. And, and they'll love uh, the fact that that people were killed with an axe. Oh, that'll. <laughs> yeah, she's a they real love horror, horror movies. That. Yeah, <laughs> she's you. a real horror aficionado. Yeah, like, and so look at her. Like, do you so you, <laughs> yeah, so you have Jack coming right out of the gate, and you have that. You're waiting for that, so you're building suspense. Plus. His his innovation in using the Steadicam the way he does is leaving you with long periods to of just suspense. You're moving the camera in ways that are almost POV in some point. Sometimes they're direct POV. And sometimes you're losing characters as you move through spaces and you don't know when they're going to reappear. You mm-hmm. don't know what to expect. So with his camera movements, you're getting all this... Uh, visual tension so you have the tension of jack you have the visual tension then you add on top of it this just intense score which is also keeping you like just uh, 
you know, glued to what's going on and your 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 hackles up waiting for something to happen. So he's very he he watched horror movies. You could see that he went in, saw what worked, saw what didn't work, and then processed it and filtered it through his own system, which is it's just it's it's a triple threat of just that. And then you add uh, Shelley Duvall, who is cast because she is weird and unique and different and odd. And you have her mm-hmm. acting style, which is it is fascinating to watch and it is unhinged. Like if she turned out to be a person running around killing everyone, it could just be equally as a compelling a story because she also is something that is uh, mysterious in terms of her abilities. So, I mean, I think I think that that just sets it apart like from a lot of other films because it's not so much about the supernatural elements and it's like what Aaron said it's more about the family dynamic which layers all of this horror and makes it more realistic which goes into what Matt was saying about this idea of the uncanny and having this ability to connect with something that is not not real and so therefore becomes something that is uh, fearful for you. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I was thinking about while I was uh, watching the movie and then a lot after and reading about just fear in general and thinking about kind of, well, I mean, what causes fear? What? Why does fear exist? I mean, I think most people, you ask them why fear exists, they would say, so you don't get eaten by a tiger, you know? Mm. Um there's a tiger running Fear after flight you. Or you fight decide, or flight. oh, I gotta gotta go run now because I don't want to get eaten by that tiger. Um, I mean, I think the first thing that came to mind for me was just that you you gain fear through experience, and so ultimately, what you're afraid of is what's happened to you in the past. When you know you you aren't afraid of fire until you get burned, and um, and there's lots of past in this movie. There's the Indian burial ground. There's mm-hmm. uh, Grady murdering his kids. There's the abuse in in the family's past uh, and the alcoholism. Um, and then just in general, the hotel past, the, the party that's happening in the gold room. The gold, even the gold uh, itself uh, in, in Western history. Um, and uh, obviously we'll get more into that as, <laughs> as we get to room 237. Um, but then I think also what makes you afraid in movies often comes down to um, being in an unfamiliar situation and being unable to trust things that are familiar to you in those situations. And I think the way Kubrick creates that in this movie is putting you into a hotel that makes no sense and that you have really no clear idea of how a family is even supposed to exist in this hotel. I mean, I love the scene where they show him the completely just like ridiculous, like the ridiculously bland uh, room where Danny is going to be. And Jack's just like, it's great for a kid. It's perfect for a kid. Perfect <laughs> like, for a child. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and then, of course, all the stuff that people have noticed about the fact that, you know, the office has a big giant window, but there's but it's surrounded on all sides uh, by hallways, um, that none of the real architecture of the hotel makes a ton of sense. Um, 
there's even a maze that uh, disappears in, ex in exterior shots. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I think that aspect of it uh, kind of sets, makes, makes the setting really compelling. And then you're putting a family, you're putting two adorable little twins, um, you're putting these, these things that, you know, sh should make you feel more comfortable in the situation and you are turning them into terrifying things. And that's been done time and time again, especially since this movie with, you know, uh, children's nursery rhymes being turned into scary things or, you know, the ice cream man being a murderer or whatever it is. Um, I think it's a common, common device in, in horror films. Um, but here he really gets to the root of it all, which is the, the family, the protective family dynamic and the idea that, you know, if you can't trust your dad, um, what, what are you going to do? I mean, how do you survive that situation? Because you're stuck in this place that you are unable to leave and that you don't understand. And the one person who's supposed to protect you is trying to murder you. Yeah, what you, what, what you both said actually made me think about, and, and I haven't really thought about this before, probably, well, at least not for a while, what actually influenced this film. And, and as Trav said, uh, he, he watched a lot of horror. I, I don't think it's Giallo or, you know, a lot of the schlock horror that was just coming into uh, into popularity. But I, I, I think that his sense of fear, I think that probably a lot of it comes from Hitch. And I think that maybe some like uh, like Michael Powell um, or maybe Rogue with Don't Look Now. But mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of it actually comes from like, and again, Stanley Kubrick was very unique and very mysterious, but I was thinking Fassbender and uh, how he portrayed anxiety uh, in his films and, um, and, and also how he incorporated that with uh, his, um, his f filming, uh, his um, technique. Like, uh, I don't know if you ever saw Fear of Fear, which really, to me, is just a movie about anxiety, family anxiety. Uh, have you seen that? No. No, I have uh, not. It's pretty good. It's a TV movie, but with any Fassbender, it's, uh, it's worth seeing. But he, he would just uh, have some, uh, I guess it was like dissolves a little bit when, when somebody was, was showing fear. So and I, I don't know what influenced Kubrick, but, um, but yeah, I think the, the concept of fear, it's not the... Saturday night or Friday night midnight movie slasher horror thing. It's it's something deeper within. It's something that uh, we can all identify with. It's uh, it's the the mulligan. It's the 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 family. It's the uncanny. Um, yeah, and I think it's definitely distinct. And and yeah, as we already noted, it took a while for people to really understand why. But it but it certainly did scare people when it came out. And it's and it's a lot of the same like. When, when I first saw 2001, that moon base sequence going out to the dig site, like, that was filled with dread for me. Like, yeah. it was so tense. And that's the same sort of uh, feeling I feel in this movie, which is this fear of you don't know what's real. There's no steady footing in this film. Like, you know, like we, we've touched upon, the, the, the hotel is a maze. Nothing makes sense. Like, where things are in relation to one another, there's no logic to it. And, it like, you know, that elevator is... Where is that elevator? Because there's an yeah. elevator over here. Where's that? Like, mm -hmm. nothing makes sense. And, you know, and he knows this. He designed it intentionally to not make sense. Like, there's no... 
you know, there's no, there's no way. Like, I, I've worked on enough movie sets in which if, if it was needed to be in the film to show space and awareness, they would build it and construct it to be able to make perfect sense. It, they do it for every other movie. So for this movie, he specifically wanted it to reflect the hedge maze outside, which was another thing that he invented for this film. Because in King's book, it was a topiary garden where the topiary came to life and, you know, or encroach upon the house and create this dread, which um, when you think about it in terms of picturing what it is in your mind, I can see how it would be kind of horrific. But when you actually see walking bushes, it's not scary at all. And but this fear of being lost, this fear of not being Mm -hmm. able to be found, this fear of being trapped and isolated in this maze is a perfect example um, Matt, you were talking earlier about um, this idea of fear of like normal things that you can relate to um, that you could be afraid of. Um, and a lot of that has to do with pain. And we talked about uh, Aaron brought up Jalo films. And one of the things that uh, <clears throat> one of the things that Dario Argento always focused on in making his horror films is, Uh, things that everyone has experienced and exploiting them for pain or wincing or kind of terror. So, you know, this fear of getting stabbed in the eye. You know, how many times have your parents told you, don't do that, you're going to poke your eye out. And he he exploits these things for terror or for gross out or for reactions. And there's that kind of fear of pain. And in this film, it's it's not a fear of pain that is being exploited. It's a, it's a, it's a fear of isolation. It's a fear of loneliness. It's a fear of failure. It's a, it's, it's, it's a psychological pain. It's all psychological pain. And you can see it connected to the childhood trauma. You could see it connected to Jack's fragile male ego Mm. and the fact that he's unsuccessful in what he's doing. And Wendy, who, who is, fearful of the fact that her family is falling apart like each of them have completely realistic identifiable fears and then he just takes it he puts it in this place where you have no stable footing and you don't know what's real and not real it it completely exploits it and makes it something that resonates which i think is why you can go back and forth on this movie and see it from generation to generation because all those fears are still a constant in our society which is is something you know fascinating yeah i mean one thing that i uh like about that is just that one of the things about this movie that i think is interesting is that my, my least favorite parts are often the kind of quote unquote money shots like the the jump scares or the scary things that are supposed to make you scared or are supposed to horrify you are kind of the least interesting aspects of this movie to me and are the moments where I'm like oh that's not that great like I'm not super <laughs> impressed with that like like when uh, Halloran is murdered with the axe it's kind of like he jumped Jack Nicholson jumps out and there's loud music and it's just kind of like, mm-hmm. okay, Kubrick. All right. You're doing the horror movie thing. I get it. Mm-hmm. But like when he's walking up to the hotel, it's terrifying. And, and when, and you know, that 
that aspect of it like when jack enters room 237 it's scary as hell and when he walks into that room and there's i mean the hot naked lady to me is way scarier than like the creepy rotting naked lady is oh yeah and when danny walks in it's i think it's even scarier yeah and and you were talking about the 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 continuity and the hedge mage actually even this is not a a a scary scene in that sense but one that kind of highlights the the palpable loneliness is that overhead shot of the hedge maze when uh, when jack is looking down on on um on them as they're walking through it and you just see their in fact i kind of wondered i don't know if you guys know how that was shot yeah they they mentioned it i i, I think maybe it was in a, a supplement or something so yeah. they they shot the model and then what they did was they built the center of the maze or what the center of the maze would look like right next to an apartment building in england and they had, and Kubrick himself actually shot it. They they got out on this thing and shot directly down into the um, the hedge from up above, and then they and then just sandwiched uh, them together. Yeah, they just matted it or whatever and put it um, in the middle of the model shot. Uh, it's a super awesome shot, but it also is again. I mean, it's an example of like, well, first of all, it's a mirror. Uh, you know each each side is identical to the other side um but it's also way too big to be the actual Mm, maze that would that would happen outside of a a hotel like that um and so that that aspect of it uh is again just another example of like uh, you 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 and you get wrapped up in these things the first time you watch it you don't think like um, uh, you know unless you're like one of like the obnoxious person that I sit next to at every, I seem to sit next to it every movie. Like you're not going to think <laughs> like, Oh, that's not the real maze. <laughs> yeah. um, well, and the continuity thing, things, you don't see that unless you yeah. really, really rewatch it. And I, I know that you had to use a lot of locations too. So, but I think you're right, Trav, that I think it's mostly deliberate. Uh, Matt was talking about the, uh, the things that are fearful or, or, or terrifying are the things that are just kind of like, the lead ups, not the horror tropes that mm-hmm. we kind of we dig in on. And I think like one of the things that always has struck me that I find to be not so much horrifying, except in terms of kind of like a horrifying truth that you can struggle and you can work hard to be a good person, but it's fucking for nothing, which is <laughs> Halloran's story. Like there's mm-hmm. something so depressing about that. You know, it's not the like, oh, he's coming to save them. It's just this like, I want to do good and help these people. I I want to make that effort and I make a huge effort to do it and it's for nothing. And that's what like that is just something that has always stuck with me. Like, and it's so bleak. It's that, you know, don't help anyone. You're just going to end up hurt. (laughs) Well, he does. Like, he does kind of save them, right? Because he, I mean, he, they they're yeah. able to use his. Uh, yeah, he, his he gives them gives them time to he escape. It. Yeah, yeah. Which if and you also want... Wendy sees his body, and 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 then I'm not that she would doubt that that Jack is batshit before then, but you no, know, the stakes are definitely raised when he says he's going to bash her head, and he's really going to do it. Yeah, so. yeah. But then, like, if you go into the logic of the film, basically, Danny killed Halloran. Oh yeah. Like, you know, Danny brought him here right, so they could right. escape. And then 
you know, and then or Wendy, Tony did, maybe. or yeah, or Tony, yeah. <laughs> Which you know, that was the thing with uh, Stephen King's version of the film, the TV show movie that he made. You know, you find out that Tony is Danny in the future. Talking back to him, God. it's so stupid. Oh, it was me. so badly done because it was like a floating head in a yeah, corner of a so screen. <laughs> oh, it was so bad. But there's that. There's that going on. But and then you have like when Wendy sees Halloran dead, like I, I I understand like that registering of like oh shit, like he's he's totally lost it. But at the same respect, this is after she's seen three weird things, and now she mm-hmm. sees this. I wonder if like. It, when I, you know, on this viewing that I was watching, I was like, "Oh, I wonder if she considers this to be a part of this the weird stuff she's seeing." Which you know, does it sink in? But then probably when she sees the cat, I'm sure that's when it. Like when she sees right. the snow machine outside, I'm sure that's when it. Yeah, know, that's really true. Sinks because in. why would that's he be there? Connection. I mean, he's not. Yeah. You know, he he shouldn't be there. Uh, there shouldn't be any anybody who can get into the hotel anyway. Um, yeah, I mean. Uh, I I hate to read into it too much in this way, but like Halloran, obviously, like I mean, especially because I guess Slim Pickens was considered for the role briefly by Kubrick, um, but he decided he didn't want to to deal with eighty seven takes again. <laughs> um, but uh, but but Halloran is black in the book, um, and so you know it, it does kind of carry over in that way. But he does. It, I mean, you, you know, I do think, uh, and I don't buy into the the native american metaphor of the film or anything like that but i i do think that the hotel does symbolize in a way the the general evil uh of america i mean i think Mm -hmm. if you if you especially go with jack's super random line of white man's burden uh when he's talking to the ghost white um, man's burden yeah i mean i do think the the hotel can be looked at in that way once you extend it with the Indian burial ground aspect. Um, and then Halloran becomes essentially like the stand-in for the African-American experience in America of being mm-hmm. witness to mm-hmm. the like destruction and evil that is uh, that has been caused by uh, white people or just generally Americans in this country. Um, and he comes back to save the future, essentially, and is just murdered again. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, you know, regarding the Indian thing, though, I think there even I think it's mostly exposition, but I think there is a little something there. It's just like a lot of things overread. Right. Um, but I, but I, I think the just because that's the history of the American West and that's in, incorporated. And you kind of alluded to that earlier. That's incorporated into the backstory of the hotel. You know, they, they had the Indians were attacking them as they built the hotel, which just shows you that the people building the hotel were probably assholes. Yeah. I love the casual way. He's like, he's like, they actually uh, defended it. They had to fight off a couple of attacks. It's like, yeah, it's like, you're just walking along and you're like, we raped a bunch of people's ancestors. (laughs) Anyway, over here is the bathroom. Well, yeah. I mean, and that goes with this just casual mention of, Oh yeah. And the guy just, he killed his family. Yeah. With an axe. Got, gotta tell you. <laughs> you can see why each, I would want he to tell snorts, you. He snorts. He snorts before saying it, too. He's just like, oh, figured it's worth can you believe it? With an axe. Yeah, well, it's um, like, it's also, it's like, like at a certain point, these people have to be like, um, maybe I shouldn't be at this hotel. It's like, um, by the way, every time you go to uh, bed, you have to walk under this ladder. 
and uh, <laughs> <laughs> pass the black cat that's yeah, going back yeah. and forth by your door. <laughs> Pretty terrible hire, too, if you really think about it. I mean, <laughs> I yeah. was not convinced by the interview, but uh, I don't think <laughs> yeah. they did their 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 background. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and that, that's actually another thing that really people don't think about is that Jack or, or um, uh, Mr. Torrance, Jack does not ever really do any work. Um, oh I yeah, mean, he really is just oh, completely no. derelict in his job from day one. Yeah, so, yeah, he's waking uh, up at eleven, like for no yeah. reason. <laughs> oh yeah, he's 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 there to write. That's it. Like he's not there to do anything else. And you see that. Like Wendy's take it does everything. Like she yeah, has absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about Which, them because we haven't we haven't gotten into the the performance aspect of this. What do you what do you guys think about Jack Nicholson? in this role and sort of what do you think about the, the, the performance and kind of the, the debate of whether it's too over the top or not? It is too over the top, but I am totally fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just Jack. He's just a magnetic. He has that, that charisma and, uh, and, and he, he is hammy. I think, I think we'd all agree even, in a lot of his roles around this time and and, and later, but um, you know, for, for instance, the scene where he's confronting Shelley, the baseball bat, or, um, or Wendy, the baseball bat scene. I mean, he's maniacal, but he's so quotable and he's so, uh, yeah, he's so, so enthralling. And then, and I think the 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 other scene, the bar scene with Lloyd, mm. uh, the white man's burden, hair of the dog, the the bitch. Um, yeah, I, I, he's definitely over the top, but. Even when he's not, even not in those those iconic uh, when he really loses it scenes, um, but like the the job interview, you know, he's or when he's touring the apartment and notices the kids' room, like there's that little subtle something's off about him, uh, you know, even just his his bullshit answer about the uh, when he's confronted about the axe murderer, you know, you can tell that there's that there's some falsehood there. Yeah, that's why I think he he's a terrible hire. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. Should, they should have saw through that. Um, what do you think, Trap? Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's evident from you know frame one that he's he's wearing a mask, like he's just mm. he's putting on a show, um, and it's a show that he puts on for the people of the hotel to get the job. It's a show he puts on for his wife because the moments where the mask slips are those moments where he is just vicious and cruel. Like, those are the times where he's really being himself, because otherwise, and those are the times where he's not, he's not over the top. He's, like, he's intense. Yeah. And I find that to be fascinating, because his other stuff is just all, like, you know, he's, he is, he's elevated. And he, like, you can, you know, knowing that Kubrick was intentionally choosing, you know, he had, like, 200 options on the table. And so he is specifically going for something very you know, intentional with his mm-hmm. choosing of which takes to use of Nicholson. And so having him be over the top makes it seem like he's putting on a show for everyone. And then those moments where he's not and he's staring or he's vicious and you see that mask drop away for a bit and you see who he truly is, that makes him terrifying. And that's what makes him in his quiet moments, like the last, true moment he spends with his son and he he sits him on his lap and they have that conversation that is just like uh, is so tense because you've seen him snap at wendy and you've seen him uh be you know just have this 
have these staring off and just these moments of uh oh man what the uh the doctor at the beginning of the show uh, auto hypnosis self-induced trances that's what she calls uh danny's little episode and when like this was the first time i kind of connected that to jack's state of being like if you think about those times where he's just staring off and you don't know what he's looking at or yeah, what he's the thinking, shot with the fire in the background while he's looking the shot, outside. Yeah, yeah, while he's looking outside, or the shot of him staring at the maze, or mm-hmm. you could easily have had the shot of him just staring at the wall at the bar. Yeah, and it would have mm-hmm. been the you know it, it's the same look he's doing. He's just putting himself in these auto hypnotic trances and then playing these scenes out in his head. You know, so it makes me wonder like what are these other scenes? So. I think Jack Nicholson's performance is great. Um, I, I can't, I can't picture it as someone else, uh, like anymore at least, because he's so you know you can't untie him from this film. And I think that was one of the failings of Stephen King's TV series. You know, he put what's yeah. his face from Wings in oh, that nice. show, and it wasn't. <laughs> You know, and you had him working. You had him going in the basement. You had him changing the furnace. You had him knocking down a hornet's nest. And he was doing all this stuff. And it wasn't, it didn't feel like what he was there for. You know, in this movie, he's like, it's a selfish act. And he is putting on this show to get his way. And the other thing that's kind of left out is there's that moment where he says, oh, he teaches out in Vermont. He goes, oh, I'm not a teacher anymore. I'm a writer. And. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that is left out of that is the implication that he didn't leave teaching. He was thrown out of teaching because he Mm -hmm. beat the shit out of a student. You know, so there is that. He is a violent person by nature. And sure, we can blame the alcohol. But without the alcohol, he's still a violent person by nature. Which, you know, taking your American experience uh, uh, concept and tweaking a bit, I mean... He is a perfect example yeah. of kind of like mm-hmm. the patriarchy, the old ways of thinking about everything. You know, the wife does everything. I focus on me. Yep. The kids should be hurt, seen and not heard. And this is how life should be. And then he's emasculated constantly throughout the movie with either his wife kind of like putting him in his place subtly or the hotel basically telling him he doesn't have the balls to do what should be done. And so I think yeah. that he does he a great job with that. Them. Mm-hmm. He has he to correct them. To, so yeah, yeah I, I think I think Nicholson's great. I don't think I think he's the right amount of over the top because this mm-hmm. character is unhinged and he is a he he is a psycho. He is someone who is already that thing. Like that's the thing that we talked about earlier. He is this character already stepping into that door to get the job. Yeah. I love your use of masks, obviously, because, you know, I think that was a a common theme in Kubrick's films. Mm. Um, And I I, I think he's uh, amazing in this movie. And I think in the same way that um, Pacino's performance in Scarface a couple years later uh, sort of defined the rest of his career um, and defined the Pacino persona as people kind of think of it in parody form. Um, this the did the hoo-ha same. Pacino? Yeah. Yeah, can uh, you imagine Pacino doing this? <laughs> well, I, I can Wendy. like 10 years later. Give me the bat, Wendy. Wendy. Give me you the gotta bat, miss Wendy. my axing. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to miss my hoo-haing. Um, yeah, no, I think um, I, I think uh, this this really defined Nicholson, and, and he definitely had some of that um, kind of uh, over-the-top 
uh, Joker personality uh, in some of his earlier films. But there's also some really nuanced, beautiful performances. You look at a movie like King of Marvin Gardens, which doesn't get mm-hmm. enough shine, I think. Um, five easy pieces. Yeah, and five yeah, easy pieces. I mean, there's definitely moments that are kind of vintage Jack, quote unquote, in that movie. But he also gives a, a really um, complex performance um, in the same way that Pacino had a lot of those in the 70s and not much more after Scarface. I think after this movie, this is how people thought of Jack Nicholson. And, you know, I mean, he was the retired uh, astronaut in terms of endearment. And, you know, he still had other roles in him. But I think this was, this became the the Jack mythology. I think it's why he got the Joker. And he's basically playing Jack Torrance in uh, Batman. Um, oh, for sure. So mm-hmm. I, I think... Uh, that that's not necessarily you know uh indicative that it's a amazing performance but i think it certainly uh shows just how much this implanted in people's brains and um how compelling he is i mean you never want to look away when he's on screen he's really he mm-hmm. does such a he, it's it's so interesting he's like a spider you know you never know where his legs are going to go next and <laughs> it's just it, it, it is terrifying and yeah, just thinking about his '70s work, actually, I think, I think he's a, even without having this performance and not being able to take it away. I, I think even like the the last detail, you know, that that character had a lot of edge to him and was you, you couldn't take your eyes off him and kind of stole the movie. Um, but that that's it, it also had nuance and, and that translates uh, well to 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 Torrance. So yeah, yeah, yeah he he was something. Um, so what about Duvall? What do you guys think of? Uh, uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Duvall uh, and her performance uh, along with all of the baggage that comes with that. And I think the two biggest things we should probably get into with regards to that, I'll let you guys choose which one you want, we want to talk about first, um, is uh, the, the making of documentary and sort of how Kubrick uh, treated her uh, based on the, the small amount of footage we get in that film. Um, and also how her character fits into uh, Kubrick's depictions of women in his films at large. Uh, Aaron, I'll start with you. Well, I, I have I don't believe I've seen the documentary, at least not recently, um, to where I or the the footage. But I, I understand that he wasn't too nice to her, if I remember right. Is that that is correct? that is correct? Um, and I think he did get a lot out of her in performance i think a lot of it might be real but um and, and actually her her reacting to kubrick and not to jack but um but no i i actually be, be curious to hear from you guys since you've seen uh, seen more of this than i have travis did you watch the documentary i did and uh i remember also reading somewhere else that like you know, and I think it was his attempt to explain away how horribly he came off in the documentary. But he said he was saying something along the lines of um, he wanted to he wanted to keep her in a constant state of not knowing and being on edge. So he treated yeah. her poorly during the you know during the whole entire project to keep her in that constant state. Um, but you know, with that in mind. You know, if we look at her as a Kubrick woman in the complete, you know, uh, history of Kubrickian women, she has the most lines. 
It's the first time he has a woman speaking more than something to, uh, you know, I love you type of Mm. stuff or I'm sexy type of stuff. Um, So that's a huge step. This is also the first script that he's written with a woman, with a woman, which is, I think, also the reason why she has more to do with this. Um, But it is still a very poor idea like she doesn't jack levels a lot of horrible things at her about her keeping him down keeping him from succeeding screwing up their life constantly accusing him like he levels a lot of horrible things at her and she does not redeem herself she does not get a moment to show that she is not the cause for the problems. Um, the second half where she should be given some sort of, I need to figure this out and I need to solve this problem. You know, she's the woman who knows how to use the boiler. She's the one who knows how to use the radio. She's the one who knows how to drive the cat. She's not given that moment to show that she is a competent human being. She, while everything, while the son and father drama is playing out, she just runs around the hotel mm-hmm. screaming. Which I think well, is, you know, they sure they sure are doing work a lot though. Um, well, I know she does that's hit him thing. over like, the head with a baseball bat and drag him. And into she the does that. She, I mean, yes, if it wasn't like, for the ghosts, he, she would be okay, I guess. But I mean, yeah. like you know, she she is competent. She knows how to do all that stuff, yeah. and he takes the time to show she knows it. But then it doesn't pay off at the end. She just kind of, I mean, as much as she hits him in the head with the baseball bat, he stepped into the swing. It wasn't like she hit him. He like leaned forward and got clocked in the head after her like wild swings backing away. You know, she even to that point, I feel that she didn't, you know, want to hurt Jack still. She was still trying to figure out a way out of this situation. And then he kind of lunged forward, got clocked on the nog, and she put him in the cooler. You know, it's not like she put him in the cooler and then like figured out a way out. She took a nap. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'll lock him in the cooler. Kinda, let's go take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> she is kind of weak um, in, in that re- respect, but I, I think also, and I, I know it's three guys talking about women's experiences, but yeah. uh, but she's, I, I think she's also a little. She could be the abused wife, and uh, you know, doesn't want to poke the bear with uh, with with oh, Jack and. Yeah, oh no, so, for sure. No, I agree with that. I think uh, maybe I'm not making my uh, I'm not being clear, but like, you are. You are. Yeah, she she is those things, and that's that's from Kubrick because he has never painted any of his women so far as we've watched these chronologically. They they've had no no agency. Yeah, and even in this movie where she's given a bit of agency, she isn't allowed to be fully realized as a character of agency because even then everything happens to her and she yeah, just spends she, her time escaping. Yeah. She's even reacting. at the beginning yeah. of the movie, yeah. she's just sitting at home reading catcher in the rye. Like she doesn't, she's not yeah. doing anything with her, with her life. And, and all she's doing is moving to this, this, you know, hotel in the middle of nowhere for the winter to watch her husband, write, Who hasn't written anything before. Like it, she's just going to mm-hmm. go there, uproot her entire life and, uh, start doing something for you know and then she ends up just doing the job herself instead of telling him to actually do the thing that he got hired for 
Um, so Matt, so I mean, we've watched all of Kubrick's performances uh, with in regards to women, women, and how he's not concerned with women so much. You know, we've noticed that. So in this one, when he's finally forced to concern himself with a woman, do you think he rises to the occasion and does what needs to be done? No, not I. Well, <laughs> I don't. I think he's still not necessarily concerned. I mean, I think he. I think this is probably the first film because ultimately I I don't think this performance is quite as good as the other Shelley, Shelley Winters uh, Mm -hmm. in Lolita. Um, But I think in Lolita, you know, he had a very kind of negative uh, attitude towards the portrayal of her in that movie. And I think, you know, he didn't give a shit about Lolita. So I think this character, he definitely cares more about and wants to show the abuse and evil just general evil that is directed her way but i still don't think that there's any perception of interest in her inner life or in the way that she is necessarily responding to anything in the movie um so i think he's concerned with her well-being but i don't think he's necessarily concerned with her agency as you as you put it earlier or um her perspective um at all really uh in the movie so i think that aspect of it he he doesn't really succeed at and i totally understand the criticism of her character as being um, just a, a a shrieking nothing, um, and but I I don't a hundred percent agree with it. I think that her performance is pretty compelling and just as kind of um, odd and interesting as Jack's performance here. So I think from that perspective, he w- he was successful. Um, I did find it really interesting just reading. Um, diane johnson's experience on the movie i i kind of um seeked out a lot of her uh thoughts on the movie because i i had forgotten that a woman co-wrote the movie and i was thinking well i mean i wonder what her experience was like and the one thing that i i noticed <laughs> was when she was talking about uh the, the shelly duvall character she said um and other people have have maintained that that the character was cut down um, pretty significantly from the original mm. script. And uh, the thing that Diane Johnson said that really struck me was I sympathized with her and gave her things to say. And I think like, yeah. that's pretty much it. <laughs> those are the two things uh, that that um, Kubrick never really did with women. I mean, I think he empathized with them, but not necessarily in a relatable way. I think that he... he yeah. He he recognized the the evil that men do to women, but I don't think he really thought about it from the perspective of well, what is no. that like for a yeah. woman, and and what does that mean um, yeah. for he, who he wasn't who like Berg- is. He, not like Bergman. He didn't want to tell yeah. their story or really explore their story. But um, yeah, well, I, I think Duvall actually is a little. I think she's a little underrated as far as uh, her performances in the 70s. I think she did some pretty good work. Um, but I, I think she's an interesting cast here because she's 
she does have that shrieking, uh, um, I guess, aspect, which I think we saw in Three Women a little bit. Um, but she, she also has that kind of golly gee, go with the flow, yes. uh, act as if nothing's wrong. And it's almost like the other side of the pendulum, um, the way that performance is. And I, and I think that actually, even though that's probably not, when people look for her better moments, that's probably not them. And if anything, she might seem a little too superficial or too uh, pleasant uh, when, when there's obviously some issues, uh, uh, you know, festering. But I, uh, as as Trab pointed out, there's probably 200 takes of those, and he chose the ones that uh, where she's mm. you know, shrieking, and then he chose the ones where she's almost diametrically opposed to shrieking. She's you know putting on her really really happy face, and unlike Jack, she's not her her, her superficiality is kind of convincing. You know, um, she's maybe she's talked herself into you know, that she can live a normal life uh, with this uh, this maniac or this abusive uh, husband and, and father. But um, but no, I, I think Duval was fine. Um, it's, it's hard to think of other people in the role just because she has the role. But um, I, I, yeah, I don't know, other actresses at the time, Street, no. Yeah, I mean, my guess is yeah. that the, the role would be significantly different if yeah. she hadn't been in the cast in the role i think he would have rewritten it in a very different way yeah and and i think she also sorry go ahead no i think king like one of the king things that another thing that king leveled at this movie was in the in his version of her she was a like a really like knockout blonde which led which led to a lot of uh jack's Hmm. paranoia about her like sleeping around or cheating on him and in this, you know, you know, as much as Shelley Duvall is a very interesting character and Altman has coaxed a lot of like fantastic sexuality from her in his roles that he's that he's provided for her. Um, you know, that wasn't the casting, the dream casting that anyone had for this uh, for this translation to film. Yeah, she's not the hot uh, naked person in room two, two, three, seven. That's for sure. I mean, she she had a unique look, I'd, I'd say. Yeah, well, I mean, I think people forget how much of a unique look Jack Nicholson has because he's so famous and yeah. so Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're both yeah, that smile. very unusual it's, it's a, looking. We, oh, yeah. You know, and they have we, this, like, that you, their faces are, inter- they have very interesting mm-hmm. faces and they they don't, they almost don't seem right, you know, and, and, and that, I think, is what makes them such compelling performers because you just want to, you want to figure out what's going on with that face. <laughs> and and <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, that, that Kubrick really played into that with, uh, for, for Nicholson with the, with the mask aspect of it, because his face is so kind of elastic. Um, and with Duvall, what you're talking about, Aaron, with like the turning on the, you know, she's got that big smile and she's, mm-hmm. you know, she can be goofy when she wants to be goofy. And I think that part of it, makes her feel even more like she's uh, it, it's a mask of a different kind you know she's trying oh, totally. to yeah. to and, and convince some of it might herself. be genuine yeah well i think she because it's a lot of those are with danny yeah and so she might just be that uh, you know the the story the fairy tale theater with uh type of persona with danny yeah yeah you you can see her almost putting on a everything is going to be fine to danny because danny obviously is traumatized from getting uh, yeah. hurt so bad by his dad to the doctor that comes to visit. She really puts it on there. And then even to the, ah, shucks, look how grand everything is when they're being shown the hotel. You know, mm-hmm. it's she doesn't really have moments of 
not having that on until Jack like rips it off her face and uh, she's now left with the brutal truth of what's going on and nothing is going to be okay and I think she does a great job of that and she always looks like there's something going on behind her eyes like she looks sad she looks think like you see a cognitive process in her performance like you see her uh wheels turning and her thinking and her Mm -hmm. reaction like it's not flat and it's not one note it's in there and uh but i think uh you know i read i I think i read somewhere recently now that she's having some uh some issues uh with her health and her mental health and stuff like that um that this role really affected her and her um relationship with stanley kubrick in this movie really affected her because after this, she only does two more movies a note. Then after that, she disappears to fairy tale theater, which was something that she conceived of and wanted to be a part of and was the driving force of to kind of just be like, I want to make the world a better place and tell nice little stories to help kids feel better mm-hmm. about themselves. And, you know, she did Popeye, which is one right, of my favorite roles time. of hers. Yeah. <laughs> and then right after that, she did a. Uh, she did Gilliam's uh, Time Bandits, and then she just fell oh, off right. the face of the earth for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, her her uh, you you definitely should watch the the, the making of documentary Aaron. It's only about thirty minutes, and her um, her interview in the documentary is so odd for this character and for mm. the way that Kubrick's mm. relationship with her is depicted in the movie because in the documentary because she almost sounds like her character when she's talking about the experience of working with him because it sounds like she's trying to convince herself that this person who was terrible to her uh was was the best director she ever worked with and you know she she would never uh trade it trade the experience for a million years and then you're seeing these these scenes of her where she like feels like her hair's falling out and kubrick's like stop being a baby it's, there's like one <laughs> hair here like oh it's a whole it's a whole fist of hair right like just completely just being terrible um, and and then she's you know you cut cut to cut to shelly being like this is the best experience of my life and it it, it it's it's an odd experience yeah her, life her, imitates art a little yeah. bit <laughs> yeah her her interview felt a lot like a uh, deposition yeah like somebody was <laughs> off cam- like kubrick was off camera pointing a gun at her yeah. and she talked <laughs> yeah and then you cut that next to scatman crothers who's uh yeah. who who's weeping at the uh, opportunity to work on this film and how much he loved everyone huh. in it and he didn't know is, who kubrick he just was gets before he made the movie he, yeah, he did it for Jack. Yeah. Jack knew him from uh, Cuckoo's Nest and said, "Hey, won't you come do this? You'd be perfect for this." Yeah, yeah, and uh, and he is. I mean, he's he's amazing in the movie. By the way, it's a really mm-hmm. spectacular performance, especially that scene at the table. I could watch over and over again. Oh, he's great. And actually, yeah. it's it's also worth mentioning that Danny is a tremendous child actor. Um, speaking of dropping off the face of the earth, I don't think he did anything. He never this. made another I, movie. Yeah, he was. No. He had a TV appearance or a couple of TV. Per- appearances i think travis but he he never uh he never made another film after this he tried he kept trying to to be an actor um and eventually mm-hmm. quit when he became a teenager yeah and I, yeah. yeah and he was just plucked out of obscurity like he did a he didn't want to known anyone yeah. to be the kid and so he did like three different cities 
I think he was one of 500 tapes no, five, from that city. 5,000. He was 5,000, 5, excuse me. Aud- there were 5,000 kids that so, supposedly that auditioned, um, and Leon Vitale interviewed all of them and uh, sent the videotapes to, to Kubrick, who made the decision. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that doc about him, film worker, that I wish we could have caught it before this one, because I think this is where he really starts. Yeah. This is where he's the assistant, and you can see him you know, in the behind the scenes and in the background and helping with decision-making processes, which I find to be fascinating that he was such a, uh, a co-conspirator with Kubrick on lots of, lots of information. Uh, you know, it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I just checked, uh, thank you, Wikipedia. Danny Lloyd is now a biology professor. Wow. <laughs> so there you go. Um, the most noble profession. I think this movie actually yeah. in reality is just, it's all about like learning biology like I think that's what. <laughs> I, I think we should do a documentary about that. Uh, uh, that theme. Um, well, our two, uh, I was going to go two thirty-seven. Yeah. Well, I was going to go to the ending, but I feel like we've we've maybe covered the ending. I don't know. Did you guys want to? But because I do want to get to room two thirty-seven. But was that? Is there anything you guys want to say about the picture? Like, what did you guys? Th- I, I guess I'll ask this question. What did you guys think when you first saw it? Aaron, I know you were probably just, you know, peeing your pants when, <laughs> when you were eight. <laughs> but, like, what did you guys think was happening the first time you saw that picture? What, 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 what did you put together as, like, the reason why he shows up in that photo? Supernatural. I, I, I was all in, on board on the supernatural. And I think that your first watch, uh, and maybe it's just me, but I, I don't think you can really make that leap into the family drama and the unreliable narrator and and all the indian stuff and fake moon landing but um but yeah i I just thought that the hotel was possessed and that uh yeah everything it was pretty cut and dry but that's not not a very it's a pretty elementary reading of the film i think yeah i think uh the first time i saw it i was kind of like what he was always there it kind of gelled that (laughs) it gelled that that idea that this is was truly supernatural that this was um, something that it was uh, always meant to happen, and I, I I found that you know paired with uh, with uh, Scatman Crothers' journey just depressing. That this guy is meant to constantly repeat this action. I think he was. I think you know in my in my estimation at this point, I think he was all of the characters. He's just meant to relive this. Drama over and over again. Yeah, he's all, he's all the Grady's. He's the things that are you know in at least in Kubrick's version of this film. You know, um, in the in the book, it's not that cut and dry. But uh, I think in Kubrick's mind, that that he is the thing, and he's meant to be here. And you know, it's one of the first line Jack says is like, you know, this is you know, I love this place. This place is great. I felt like a sense of deja vu. Which, you know, that sense of deja vu is the ESP, which is what Danny has, which is that feeling that you've seen this before, which is an ongoing theme throughout the whole entire film, which is nicely summed up with this picture at the end, which is that same cyclical idea of we've seen this before, we've done this before, we've been here before, and I like it. Yeah, I yeah. I think that's it. But I when the first time I saw this, I was like, oh, like the hotel absorbed him into its history. <laughs> ah. um, because it, it, it does come out of nowhere. And it's funny, like, 
uh, I read, I saw this movie before I read the book and before I saw the miniseries, which explains it much more clearly what's happening. Um, Too clearly. Well, and I don't even remember what it, the explanation was now. <laughs> it's, it's been so long. <laughs> I don't been, think I want to know. It's been 20 years. No. Is, um, is it the same one from the book? It is in the, in the miniseries. Yeah, okay. It is. Yeah. I don't remember yeah. it. So yeah. Well, and I mean, in this movie, so the, we didn't get in like the scrapbook. I don't think we need to talk too much about it, but like it was supposed there was supposed to be this scrapbook that he discovers, and it helps him to write the the novel. Because in the book, he's actually writing a novel. He's not just typing all work and no play, right, all over and work. over again. Um, but so the picture really comes out of nowhere here because the 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 best the closest you get to that is the the flapper part uh, party in the gold room that's mm-hmm. happening in the one scene. Um, but, uh, but it, it did feel like when, when I read the book, I was like, Oh, okay. So that's kind of what was happening. But then I went back and saw the mo- watched the movie again. I was like, I don't think that's what Cooper was getting at at all. And I think he just <laughs> really completely yeah. changed what the, what the meaning of that picture was. And I do think it is this sick, whether, whether it's that he, whether it's that, none of this was really happening in the first place. Um, and it's just like ghosts living the same thing over and over again. Or if it's really like that, um, that he was just reincarnated. Um, it's definitely that kind of aspect of like, he was here before and he's going to be here again. Um, and yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty creepy. (laughs) It's a kind of a fun, fun ending in a horror sense. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah. But I, the hospital ending that you mentioned, which I, I actually wasn't aware of, that um, that that would be very disappointing. I think that would be a pretty poor ending. Yeah, good, yeah. Good choice there. That that feels more like a that feels more like a traditional ghost story or a Twilight Zone. Like right. it never happened, and then you, you go to unpack the it. Yeah, and Ku- yeah, Kubrick yeah. spent you know I mean Ku- Kubrick in on all of his films he pretty much destroys everything that he doesn't end up using in the movie, and he that that scene has never been discovered at this point um and you know part of me is like oh i'd love to see that just to see what it felt like i mean we have the script so Mm. we know what happened but at the same time like there's something very freeing about not having deleted scenes from a movie you know it's like you 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 get to really just experience what the what the film is and you don't need to worry about going going there and having that image in your mind um, which yeah. which leads into the next thing that I want to cover, which is the uh, fact that the movie that we are mostly talking about, we've referenced, I think, a few things that were not in the European cut, um, is not the European cut. It's not the final cut that Kubrick made um, after this movie was released in the U.S. He did, there, there's not like a 100% guaranteed reason why he did this, but the thing I read that's probably the most believable, he did some screenings in London of the movie, test screenings. And based on those, he cut out uh, almost a half hour of this movie. And that's the cut that everybody who wasn't in the U.S. saw um, when the film was released in Europe. And uh, it's still the cut that is on the U.K. Blu-ray of the film. They've shown the U.S. version on TV there a number of times, but... Um, if you buy the uh, region-free Stanley Kubrick box set uh, from Amazon UK or wherever in England, um, you are going to get a different cut of The Shining than the cut that we all know here in the U.S. 
Um, and in fact, what's the running running time? Because I actually just watched the Region P uh, box set. Um, oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, I, but it felt like the the U.S. cut. It's uh, it's about two hours and the one hundred and forty five minutes. It, okay, the, I, the U.S. My cut, cut was two hours. Yeah. Well, okay. so it's funny. So I, so I just watched the European. We cut. did the same I, thing. So so what I did. <laughs> so this is really weird and a weird thing. So am I, I the only one who's really complete? <laughs> <laughs> no, I watch books. I watch books, so I'm good. But um, well, I've I've watched the U.S. of course. Yeah. Before this, um, so I I um, I bought the Region B, but I also have the U.S. Shining on blue, and I had switched the discs because I was like, oh, I'll just put the Region B away somewhere, and I won't think about it. Uh, but then when I went to watch the movie uh, this time, I put in the, the 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 disc that was in the case for the Region A because I wanted to watch the longer version and uh, started watching it and didn't realize until like halfway through, I was like, this is this is very briskly paced. Like I had no idea we got to this point so early in the movie. So I watched the 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 European hmm. cut of this movie first. Um, not knowing that it was the European cut, thinking that I was watching the, the version that I had seen. Now, um, is it lots of like just like little cuts, like small pieces to shorten the length? Or mostly, is it like scenes ex- excised from mostly. it. Just to there kinda... are three. There are three big cuts. Um, so the the smallest cut, um, but I think is pretty pretty major um, in terms of of how the movie comes across is uh, he cut the scene of the skeletons in the lobby when she's running okay. around. So that, okay. that is no longer there. And then um, he, he cut a lot of the scenes of Halloran trying to get to the hotel. So he really just gets on a plane and lands and goes mm-hmm. up to the, the hotel. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Then uh, the biggest cut that he, that he made was he cut entirely the doctor scene at the beginning of the movie uh, with Ah. Danny, Mm -hmm. which includes, of course, the background information about Jack hurting Danny. So when you watch... So you only get get, uh, Jack's side of the story. You don't get uh, Wendy's. Yes, and when you watch the movie, the first you hear of Jack hurting Danny is when... Shelley Duvall immediately assumes that it was Jack who hurt Danny after the nightmare and when Danny runs out of room 237. And you get the implication in her voice that this has happened before. And the fact that she goes there so quickly implies that that was really what what led him to, uh, to uh, or led her to assume that, that it was him that, that hurt him. Well, that's that's pretty crazy because I, I watched this version today and I, and I I watched the the UK version because I couldn't find my region A version. That's one problem with having a lot of a lot of Blu-rays is, um, um, and I, I didn't even notice. But now that I think about it, yeah, that that scene was missing and um, and it did move very very fast. Of course, when when, when you've seen it this so many times, yeah. um, I kind of tuned out the last third or the last uh, quarter of the film just because. I've seen Halloran, you know, that's that's when the yeah. plot unravels and the, the chase and all that. You know, it's not there's not as much nuance or um, unpacking to do with those scenes. But um, but yeah, that's uh, I definitely I, I actually I kind of think I prefer the UK cut then. Um, I do, too. 
<laughs> now, but more importantly, in the UK cut, do they remove the scene of BJ and the bear? They do not. No, that was there. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the best, like, non sequitur, like, horror gag. Like, is Shelley Duvall scared of that guy? Is she scared <laughs> of, uh, is she <laughs> homophobic? Like, it's just like, oh my god, a blowjob. And then she, like, she, like freaks out and runs away. Is that, does that it's qualify so as homophobic? Because it's a, it's a bear, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't well, it's, know. It's furry phobic. Yeah. In Polly Kale. Kale's review she doesn't even know if it's a guy or a girl in that mask and she assumes it's a girl which is which is also weird and I'm yeah. kind of kind of blown away right now because I, I think actually and I, I might be wrong but I think a lot of that the last act carnivalesque stuff uh, the freak out stuff I don't think that was in in this version um, so I think it's I think it's my, mostly my the, I think it's mostly the skeletons because there is the, okay, there yeah. is the the BJ there is the the BJ was there, there is yeah. the guy saying hell of a party right the guy <laughs> with the split forehead yeah yeah and it's so it's so funny all those callbacks are callbacks that happen in the book based on the research that Jack is doing in that scrapbook you mentioned. And so just to have these there is just so, is so oddball because unless you've done the research or done the reading, you, they're so out of context, what they're doing that it's just like, what? And I don't, I don't think I like the first time I saw it, you know, the first few times before I read the book, like, I think that was it. I was just like, what the fuck is going on here? Well, that's kind of what, with the same with the photo, right? I mean, it's like, they, yeah. they, they, it's from the book, but it's not of the book. It's just, it's totally divorced yeah. from any context. Yeah, it's so, it's so, so strange. And I could see why King would be frustrated with that, because he's like, it's totally ruining my book. Like, it has no, yeah. there's no context here, no explanation. But but it works so well that's within part of the, yeah, within yeah the film. That's that's part of well, why it works. I, I, you know you can't explain every single detail. No, yeah, no, of course, yeah. But that's that's interesting because I mean I knew I knew he made a couple of cuts before the final release. Like he did his you know his usual pre screening, cut a little bit out, did a did a his premiere after the premiere, cut two minutes out of it for the American version, right? And then he did another cut for the TV version. Because he had to cut around the nudity, he blurred some out right. and cut around some of the I other see. stuff. But then to know that there's also a European cut where he lopped a half hour out—that's that's—I had no idea. That's fascinating. My memory might be might be uh, uh, not correct here, but it seems like the nudity part was longer um, in the UK cut. I could be wrong. Yeah, I. I... I guess I, I didn't uh, I should have had a stopwatch when I watched the U.S. version for the nudity section. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm not sure, but um, yeah, I well, mean, I, there there are little cuts here and there uh, like that um, to to make it shorter. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's paced very well, and I think yeah, I mean, the the doctor scene is kind of clunky, and I think uh, you know the the only value it has in the movie is that scene of Shelley Duvall you know, kind of trying to make excuses for Jack. Um, mm-hmm. And it is a good moment for her character, but it's also, I think, explained through her behavior throughout the rest of the movie pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, um, it, it is an interesting thought experiment because, you know, a lot of people who don't like Eyes Wide Shut think, oh, well, Kubrick 
kept editing movie his movies even after they were released so obviously he wasn't finished with eyes wide shut you know it's an unfinished movie um but then a lot of those same people go and watch the u.s cut of the shining and i mean kubrick never said whether he which version he liked better um but it does seem like why like it was a top 10 grossing movie in the u.s why cut this out right if you really think the film needs those moments um it seems like that's the cut he was mysterious but usually when directors recut their their work afterward uh they that there's a reason them yeah and he was he was one of the rare directors that was not afraid to cut most directors are angry that we're yeah, cutting things out. Right. Yeah. right. He was the they first the one. three and a half he'll, hour version. Yeah, yeah. He'll watch the he'll watch the audience's faces and go right into the edit room and just start lopping stuff away to make it work for the audience, which is I found that always to be very fascinating about Kubrick. So yeah, we need Criterion to come along and just put out a two disc set <laughs> that uh, has yeah. both versions of it and the documentary and room two three seven five disc calling it, it now. And maybe there's an hour and a half version of Barry Lennon somewhere. Oh no! <laughs> I want a 24-hour version of Barry Lyndon that I can live in. <laughs> I'll pass. Um, Barry well, Lyndon, the the Dubai. <laughs> um, so the, so the one thing about uh, I think the the bridge to Room Two Three Seven here is that there are moments in Room Two Three Seven that they reference as like crucial to their theories about like why Ku- oh, what yeah. kubrick did that are not in the european cut <laughs> and oh that's so it's kind of like well if this was like the secret message kubrick put into his movie why did he cut it out of the movie <laughs> did uh, does room 237 fall in the exact middle of the film in uh, the european cut oh that's a good question yeah because there's um there's, there's the, the forward backward yeah. shining yeah yeah I, I it was like fifty minute mark or so. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, roughly. Yeah. It, uh, well, we, that's another thing we didn't even cover is like the duality in this movie and the fact that Kubrick just generally oh. like two acts. But we can get into that in Full Metal Jacket where it's yeah. most obvious. Um, what What do you guys think of Room Two Three Seven, just as a movie, but all but also just the 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 theories that are that are expounded in it? Can they be separated? Uh, I. I'm I'm probably in the minority, but I kind of love it, but I also kind of hate it <laughs> because I, I think it's just, I love it because I love The Shining, and I love that people have engaged with it so much. Kind of like how I love that, what was that movie, uh, Cine, Cinemaniacs or Cinephilia? There was one movie about people that are obsessed with cinema. Oh, They're, Cinephilia, yeah. Yeah, so I love that, even though I kind of resemble that more than I resemble the, the Room 237 people. Um, it's not like a, a five-star phenomenal movie, but it's so fun to watch because, yes, I we, we've all studied this film, but it's so funny how people can mine so much and come up with really warped reads um, of the film. Oh, yeah. uh, so so it, entertaining. Now, do I agree with any of the theories? I mean, maybe a couple of them a little bit, but like, like the Native American I already mentioned, I think there's a little bit there, but, um, you know, the moon landing, is... (laughs) (laughs) but it's entertaining. Yeah. And wasn't the moon landing one, the one that wasn't in 237 because that guy wouldn't lump his credible theory in with all these wacko theories that he thought were, Oh no, it's, I can't remember. I've, I've, 
is I it thought in it there? was yeah. Oh, yeah no i just watched it this week it's, it's... okay i i didn't rewatch it i just remember there being a couple that i was like oh well, what happened he's, to this theory he is on easily the, the craziest person in the movie though because okay. he's the one that's like i got this documentary coming out later it's gonna blow the lid off of all of this all he's, right, like, he's, yeah. he's the one who's like you know like i got people from nasa calling me telling me like don't go don't come out with this <laughs> it's like so ridiculous oh man oh that's I mean, in foil but <laughs> yeah it's it, the documentary itself wasn't spectacular like it was actually kind of boring like in the way that it was cut together for talking about such a weird movie that they could have like you know been a little more but the fast the, the, the theories are fascinating seeing someone who has such a a passion for something like yeah. you go so in depth in something is kind of fun but at the same time it just kind of goes to show that focusing on something enough with your specific agenda in mind you can make anything yeah. fit that agenda if you really truly want it to which i think was the biggest takeaway from that oh that yeah like the holocaust yeah. guy who like just yeah. happens to study World War Two, <laughs> like and yeah, he's the right. one that came upon the Holocaust theory. Like that's, it, it's, a, and he's like, it's, but it yeah. only could have been me because, like, only if you know <laughs> this stuff backwards and forwards. Uh, yeah, I, oh, I, I have to say, I, I thought it was, I, I, I didn't see it as as uh, not not a well done documentary. I uh, appreciated the fact that. Um, all of these people were just being interviewed off camera, and um, so it was it was basically a montage documentary. Right. Um, and uh, I thought it was it was for, considering that edited pretty um, compellingly. Like the fact that it held my attention uh, throughout, mm-hmm. I thought was was pretty impressive. Um, and I and I thought that the tone was really nicely done because it didn't make fun of the people but it also right didn't uh buy into their theories yeah. in any it it didn't give them or take from any credibility yeah yeah mm-hmm. and i thought by by doing that out there. yeah and i thought by doing that it really uh painted a portrait of just general obsessives and deep readings of art um that was that was pretty fun and then also like yeah. as much as i thought the people were ridiculous they uh, also had some really interesting insights into the movie. I thought, like, even though I didn't buy into their whole um, thesis behind the insights, um, there were mm-hmm. some things where I was like, "Oh, that's that's actually pretty interesting." Like the the I, the theory of Danny letting Jack out of the storeroom. Um, right. Even though I don't think that's probably true, I think it's a, a interesting concept to to ponder over. Yeah, the ones the ones that I liked in the documentary were more like exercises in artistic intent like the forward backward yeah that was playing cool. it overlap yeah. that yeah. was fantastic and like some of those like the the the, the breaking down about how the layout of the places yeah. because it really yeah. does yeah. show how this is you know artifice and how this is something that he intentionally is making you know i love that part like and 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 yeah. the forward backward just kind of shows how kubrick's mind works I'm sure it's not all intentional. Yeah. It's all a lot of feeling and that's how his brain works. And like you have his opening and you have his closing and it, it all plays together. They're very, very, uh, 
very much in sync with the way he works. And I'm sure if you took the forward backward with a lot of his movies, you would have a lot of the same kind right. of really any movie any happening. movie that has a, a two act structure probably mm-hmm. would there would be interesting things to mine. It kind of reminded me of the Bible Code. Do you guys remember that? From, I didn't from read like it, the nineties. Yeah, remember it being a thing. Yeah, it was just it, basically it was like you know cryptography, but it, bad cryptography. So it was like saying there was there were things that were predicted in the future in the text of the Bible. But the real the truth of the matter is. You could do that with any long book, and you would come up with things. Um, yeah, and I think that's yeah, probably Kabbalah. true of, yes. of the of the forward, backward, shining as well. Like you could run any movie with a two act structure like that, and it would probably be there would be interesting moments uh, that that happen. But it, it's still a, a pretty cool exercise, especially especially yeah. when you play like the third track from Dark Dark Side of the Moon underneath it. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it syncs up remarkably. Actually, um so I don't know if you mind if I mention my college uh, experience with this film. Um okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, go for it. So it, it kind of is in two, room uh, 237 territory. So what they did is they, uh, for a final project, I had to choose a film and I had to choose a, a like a five minute structure and I had to put together uh, a shot sheet. Uh, it was They gave me like these pre-printed p- pieces of paper and I had to like write down every single thing in every frame of every shot. So I, I basically spent my weekend um, going through five minutes of film and just writing down everything that was in there. And then you had to write an argument about it. And I, I actually shared this with you guys before the, the show, but I, I wrote about um, how this was more of like a, a look at women's lib, which I, I think is a little more there than some of the theories in Room 237. But it, when I reread it today, I it definitely was over-reading it. And I think just the nature of close reading in, in English and anything is over-reading beyond author's intent. And, um, you know, it's kind of a fun exercise, but that, you know, it's more just your own uh, interpretive uh, exercise but yeah so i think that's probably what what i did over that weekend and then the week of writing the paper is what these guys have done for like 10 years that's the difference, so even right. The, <laughs> right right and so they came to radical conclusions that uh yeah may, maybe some of them hold water i think mine might be a little closer but still yeah a little warped well i think i think the the overlapping thing with especially the Indian um, massacre and the Holocaust theory is that they're two of the greatest evils that have been committed in civilization. And this movie is about sort of the inherent evil of men, just as kind of all of Kubrick's Mm -hmm. movies are. Um, And uh, so the, the observations that they're making are kind of real and legitimate, but it's just that they're not as specific as these people think that they are. Yeah, you you could watch Suspiria 20 times and come up with a, a Holocaust theory, I'm sure. Yeah, and that, that's, yeah. I mean, the, you know, you could probably watch this movie and try to uh, read into it the French Revolution, or, uh, like, why not? Sure. Like, maybe this was... Reign of Terror, maybe, why not? Maybe yeah. maybe this mm-hmm. was Kubrick's Napoleon movie. You know, he decided, like, it wasn't <laughs> Barry, Barry Lyndon that was his Napoleon movie. He decided he was going to make Napoleon out of a Stephen King novel. Who knows? Like, somebody go back and spend 10 years watching The Shining and, and send me that theory. 
Um, so I, I think I'd love to read I, that I think as there's, well. it's definitely you know I mean I think those things are baked in because of the concept that Kubrick approached the movie with, which is I'm going to try to invoke fear through timeless mm-hmm. things that are scary to people. That's his universality. Like that's the thing he tries to do in all of his movies: make the subject or make the 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 themes universal, which then they can be applied in any situation. You know, we talked about that in Barry Lyndon. We talked about that in two thousand and one. These are all universal topics that will always be there and will always until society is no more. Which I guess we're going towards at a startling rate right now. Yeah, but it's about ten years, Trav. No, it's not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you kind of hinted at, at at the beginning of this, Aaron, that um, that The Shining is your your favorite Kubrick film. Uh, is that is that the case? Um, and if so, do you have a a second favorite Kubrick film? Um, yeah, I, I would say there's a difference between favorite and best. Oh. Uh, so, like for me, favorite, you know, that this was it's personal to me. I, this is my eight year old film, and I've, I've, you know, I'm I'm not quite two three seven territory, but I've I've watched this a lot, and it's a lot of fun. It's one of those movies that uh, you know I, I I do look forward to watching. I think probably my favorite favorite, or like what I think is his best film, is 2001. Um, and and as Trav alluded to earlier, there there are parallels there with the uh, the way. Tension. In fact, you didn't mention it, Travis, but I think there's a lot of the same tension in the final scene at the uh, the end mm-hmm. of 2001. I agree. Um, I think he uses some of the same techniques. So, I, yeah, I, I think they're all pretty amazing. Um, but, but yeah, The Shining is probably favorite one, and then 2001 is the best, and then Clockwork Orange, uh, maybe The Killing is somewhere nearby. Mm. All right, Travis, what do you... Uh... Where are you slotting The Shining here? Well, after this viewing of it, um, there were lots of lot a lot more things that I picked up for myself. Uh, you know, trying to focus on it and not focus on it just in terms of uh, mise en scène and kind of like keeping away from some of the Room Two Three Seven stylings. Um, you know, there's a lot more I picked up on it. I really liked, you know, like we talked about the shot structure, the editing choices the acting choices and then the one of the things i didn't touch on um that i could spend a whole another podcast on is just his color choices um the way that danny and you know just how color connects to everyone danny is wearing blue and red because he's a product of both the two of them and shelly went shelly's wearing uh shelly winter shelly duvall's wearing red and blue and then they slowly change colors throughout the whole piece. And it's, 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 I found that fascinating, but, uh, uh, I say, let's see, you know, I'm going to go through the list, do it every time. Uh, fear and loathing is, uh, is still the fear and desire is still my bottom. It is, <laughs> <laughs> it's still that will be is the one yeah. that, you know what? He, there's a reason why he didn't want people to watch it. <laughs> and I completely respect his opinion. Uh, I still, Lolita, I still have a hard time with. So we go Fear and Desire, Lolita, Killer's Kiss, Spartacus, The Killing, Clockwork Orange, The Shining, then Paths of Glory, Barry Lyndon, 2001. Um, I would say The Shining. I forgot Strange Love, too. Where did I put Strange Love? Oh, I think Strange Love is between the killing and clock uh no between the shining and mm. clockwork um 
I like I like The Shining more because I get more out of it. I think Doctor Strangelove is fascinating in its the message it's trying to say and using the comedy and the dark comedy to kind of talk about it. But I think The Shining, like every time I watch it, there's just more. It's always more. It's like 2001. I just keep getting more. But I like the message of Paths of Glory, and I love the the art of Barry Lyndon more than I do The Shining. It's hard getting to this point here. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. hard to start, you know, which child yeah. do you <laughs> like the best? Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, and I, I you know next week I could easily like I almost moved Barry Lyndon to number one this week because I've been thinking about it and sitting with it for so long, mm. but. If 2001 was our last episode, right. <laughs> I probably would have that ahead of Barry Lyndon at this point. So it's 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 difficult. It's a very hard uh, it's a very hard thing to kind of maneuver around because they each time you watch them, they just open up more mm-hmm. and more, you know, interesting ideas. And the more I change as a person as I grow in my both my cinema history and in my personal history. Uh, it's reflected back on me what things I find interesting yeah. and I take away from his movie. So it's it's great. I, this is fantastic. But that's my list as it stands right now. Sorry, sorry, Tim Lego. The Shining is not my number one. <laughs> I apologize. Hey, you know, I, I'd say that the, the Shining is as scary as Strange Love is funny, but there's more yeah. to unpack mm-hmm. in The Shining. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, Matt, well, I'm I'm really glad you mentioned the colors because. I forgot to mention how awesome the sweaters are in this movie. They are so awesome. And, in fact, in the making of The Shining, uh, there's more awesome sweaters on the crew. So they were just <laughs> swimming in awesome sweaters in this movie. Um, so if, they, if we were ranking Kubrick movies by sweater, this would be my number one. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but we're not, unfortunately. Um, uh, so I I will run down mine too because I haven't done it in a while. So uh, fear and desire is my my fine my my bottom and it will continue to be my bottom. Spoiler alert! Uh, you can cement you can pour the cement over that one uh, in last place. Um, then it goes Spartacus, Lolita, Killer's Kiss, Clockwork, The Killing, Doctor Strangelove, and then The Shining, and then Puzzle Glory two thousand one and Barry Lyndon is is number one. Um, so, uh, similar to you, um, I think, I think The Shining is probably a better movie than Paths of Glory, objectively, um, but I just love Paths of Glory so much. I love what it's saying. I love how, like, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, a confidence and knowledge in the technique in that film uh, that is matched with uh, a young person's outlook on the world um, that is really impressive to me. And, uh, you know, I just, it continues to, to be in a, a, a really appealing movie to me. I, I still think it's one of the best anti-war movies ever made. And um, The Shining has more depth, probably, in terms of what is on screen, um, but not as much in what it's saying. And I think that kind of gives Paths of Glory the edge for me. Um, but man, this is a, a watchable movie. I mean, it's uh, 
for for how terrifying it is and and it almost gets more scary the more you watch mm-hmm. it um which is which is you know the reverse of a typical horror movie i think um it's uh it it's something really impressive and i think it's going to be something that people continue to look at and try to figure out the mechanics behind for a very very long time um whereas i think his other films are a little bit more obvious in that from that perspective which is why there is not a you know uh, a moon station documentary about all the wacky theories about 2001 it's not quite as fun there are plenty of theories to be had in 2001 but it's not quite as uh it's not quite as ready made for a wacky montage um and uh and that that's that's really appealing about this movie so i think it's uh i think it's a, a great a great movie um and then uh we have he he started to uh to slow down after this movie um and so we have mm. two more movies left over the next 19 years of his life yeah. and they are thornier i think than the uh the masterpieces that we have been uh watching so far um even though we i think we both were a little lukewarm on clockwork um these these next two movies have a lot of people who love them and a lot of very vocal detractors so uh coming up next is full metal jacket um travis what do you think about watching full metal jacket and uh sort of uh how are you feeling about uh diving into that one i'm ready to put my boots on (laughs) and start walking uh, I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm. It's one of those movies that uh, are is forever entwined with uh, Platoon yeah. and uh, stories about my dad, um, who was a Vietnam vet. So I have more personal things to go into with this movie. Um, but uh, so it's been a while since I've watched it uh, removed and looking to kind of mm. do a deeper study of what's actually being said in this movie. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. This is one of the movies where I haven't really looked at it in this perspective of a deep dive of trying to understand the underlying things that are going on. So I'm excited. Well, I'm really curious to hear. I mean, I, I certainly won't be, uh, putting you on the spot next time, but anything that you are, uh, ready to share, I'm sure will be very fascinating and, um, and, and interesting to, uh, to hear from your personal experience with that thank you well aaron thanks for coming thanks guys it was a lot of fun we uh we thought we thought we lost you for a second but um we are so happy to uh to have found the time to to have you on and um this was a really really fun conversation likewise thanks for you were you were almost our Dick Halloran. <laughs> we, we, yes. we got you to the overlook, and then we axed you. I was watching TV, I saw it on the news. I had to yeah. come and save you guys, and and I, I didn't, did not die on the way. So fortunately, I was and, I was formulating were, in my head. I was like, did I did I uh, sabotage his snowcat? Like, what did I? Do? And it was actually weather played a part too. So there, there's more parallels yeah. than that. Uh, so thanks for having me, guys. No, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's a, oh, it, was, it was worth the wait thanks. for sure. <laughs> yeah. And with that, we're complete for another week.